Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And on this podcast, we give you the tools to develop a balanced approach to health. And this is a very exciting topic today. I guess you could call me a trigatilla maniac because I've been pulling my hair out waiting to discuss this. So what are we going to be talking about today? Today is all about hair loss prevention and hair loss, uh, I guess, physiology and pharmacology both. So we're going to be a bit more reference heavy and reference a few different studies and try to skim across all the different mechanisms of hair loss and hair loss prevention, not just finasteride and dutasteride, but we'll certainly talk about those. We know we get a lot of questions about them. Yeah, a lot of questions, a lot of feedback asking for a hair loss specific podcast. So here we are. So we're going to kind of go through a framework and talk about um, you know the background, all the different medications, uh, what are doses, what doses are studied, mm-hmm. what doses we prescribed, and we developed a rating scale for our medications, um, where we rate the medication's effectiveness on the Norwood scale. So a very effective medication gets a Norwood zero from us. Mm-hmm. A medication that's not so effective gets a Norwood three. A, we know the Norwood scale goes beyond yeah. a Norwood three, but we don't want you to go beyond a Norwood three. Yep. Beyond a Norwood three, you're just in shave or hair, tra- maybe hair transplant territory. Just shave it, bro. Yeah. Just shave it, bro. Territory. Um, in general, I like to think about hair loss prevention products as either growth agonists, and this is uh, not just medications. This is also supplements. This is also microneedling, et cetera, et cetera, injections. Um, so either growth agonists, kind of like fertilizer, as some people say, anti-androgens, um, and then also anti-inflammatories or anti-infectious agents, which are really kind of the same thing. So everything can be lumped into one of those three categories. That being said, I believe there's, um, for androgenetic alopecia or male pattern baldness, there's two FDA approved products in the United States. There's many others in other countries, and those are finasteride and minoxidil. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit of a Venn diagram here. If we were looking at these sort of three buckets where, you know, the DHT certainly seems to uh, aggravate an inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. Maybe we start there because, you know, it's called male pattern baldness, androgenic alopecia. Um, Androgens are clearly involved here. So should we just get rid of all androgens? Uh, Is it as James Cameron says, testosterone is a toxin. Maybe he was just talking about the hair follicle. Yeah, he was probably right when you're considering the hair follicle. Um, there's this new trend, of rightfully so, of trying to address the root cause, pun intended, <laughs> of male pattern baldness. And, you know, you get genetic tests. There's one called Trica test, and there's a whole bunch of other ones that are kind of based on that one to improve upon it. And then they look at your genetics, and they look at uh, some people say, oh yeah, that gets inflammatory, or it's a, also a female pattern baldness component, and then they choose a different intervention. But if you look at females that also have that, many of them don't have hair loss. So in many, many different types of hair loss that males have, there is certainly an androgenic component, and DHT just happens to be the most androgenic. 
So um, DHT is dihydrotestosterone. There's nothing magical about it, but it is sort of special because it binds the androgen receptor so strongly. We've done previous podcasts about testosterone, DHT, the androgen receptor, the sensitivity of the androgen receptor, the density of the androgen receptor, heat shock proteins, and we won't go into that much detail today. You can refer um, to that previous podcast, which we'll post a link to if you wish to know about more about that. But that certainly has a big uh, factor in it, even just the sensitivity of the androgen receptor, which is the number of CAG repeats. So testosterone, DHT, um, androgens like that, they all bind that same androgen receptor on the X chromosome. Right, and there's clearly different levels of sensitivity and susceptibility. Otherwise, you would see a sort of uniform pattern across all men and women. Mm -hmm. And you see trends, right? So by age 50, the, the kind of figure that gets thrown around is that 50% of men have some visible balding. But mm -hmm. does that mean that it just started at 50? Uh, no, because you, know, you don't see the balding until about you know, 40 to 50% of your mm -hmm. um, follicles are either in that antigen phase or they're essentially gone at that point, mm -hmm. miniaturized and um, not growing anymore. So we see different trends. Some people have very aggressive early onset and you see some 80 year old Norwood zeros out there, which yep. you know, clearly they have some DHT in their body. Um, and unless they happen to have the mutation, right? That's true. Those are really we interesting love those studies, studies and we should talk about that. I believe yep. uh, Andrew Huberman talked about this with Derek for more plates, more dates. Yep. Um, and basically, if you have a mutation where you don't convert testosterone to DHT, um, those individuals you know, never develop male pattern baldness. Mm -hmm. So you know, DHT is, you know, I think the terminology in a lot of disease states is like necessary, but not sufficient. So just because you have DHT doesn't mean you will go bald, but because you have DHT and in a dose dependent fashion, it would seem to accelerate that if you're predisposed to it. Mm -hmm. um, Another thing that has been discussed before is how DHT is different in different tissues. So a lot of studies, and um, for the most part in um, just culturally, serum DHT is concentrated on. But of course, what actually matters for uh, not only androgenic alopecia, but also for androgenic acne, is it's the DHT in the cytoplasm of that cell itself intrachronology, as Dr. Fernand Labrie would have said. And if you look at why DHEA causes acne, it's because in sebaceous glands, about 50% of DHEA and testosterone is 5-alpha reduced to DHT. And um, that's why even with extremely low DHT levels, you can have androgenic acne, and it's the same way with uh, androgenic alopecia. Yeah, and we'll get into this with some of the medications where you see, even though a higher dose doesn't lower the serum level, you see a bit more of an effect. And in most cases, it seems like that's mediated by the decrease in like scalp DHT, mm -hmm. or at least correlates roughly with that, no, but not, not uniformly. So talking about DHT, a lot of people are, you know, very pro-DHT. They say, you need this, otherwise you're not going to have any motivation. Your brain's not going to work right. Your cognition is going to waste away. Um, your prostate's going to become fibrosed and you're going to have sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And then other people say, you know, no, DHT is just useless after puberty. You need it for development. And then it's just, um, you know, the devil after that. And it causes all these problems. You're going to get an enlarged prostate, mm -hmm. maybe even prostate cancer. It's going to mm -hmm. make you go bald. You're going to grow hair everywhere but your scalp because of DHT. So 
I suspect the truth lies a little bit in the middle there. Correct. The right question, as we explained on the, our previous podcast about the androgen receptor sensitivity, is at the gene transcription and even post-transcription level. So we talked about this um, recently uh, regarding metformin and how it can have post-transcriptional effects on the androgen receptor activation cascade. So like the secondary effects of androgen receptor activation and how it can modulate those. So when you're talking about DHT, most people are really talking about finasteride and dutasteride and their effects in different tissues and the three different isoenzymes that are in different ratios in different tissues. And you look at how often is the androgen receptor being activated. And again, just depending on your sensitivity and density that can be um, activating too much or too little to find that happy medium zone or the dose makes the poison zone as you discussed. And then there's also other effects. So testosterone is not the only molecule that is 5-alpha reduced. Progesterone is another common one and looking at DHP and THP, again, in different cells across the body, across the blood brain barrier can also make a difference. So that's gonna be vastly different for everyone. And some people are gonna be more or less predisposed. So that's um, one of the reasons why you need to talk to a doctor about it and get individualized medicine. Yeah, it almost seems like this individualized thing keeps coming up. And yeah, that's important to look at because if you look at a medication on the surface level, it's like, oh yeah, you take this, testosterone gets converted into less DHT, but that's not the only effect. Um, it, you know, you're gonna have a, I guess less tissue selectivity is how I would describe it as you go up in the dose of most interventions. You know, you're going to end up mm -hmm. like pushing the side effect profile up in a dose dependent manner. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this just a touch at the beginning, but you know, um, you know, women have a much lower incidence of um, hair loss. Um, it seems to accelerate quite a bit at menopause. And when that happens, essentially estradiol levels fall off of a cliff. And you see the exact opposite in pregnancy, where mm -hmm. progesterone levels and estradiol levels are, you know, sky high. Yeah. Uh, because essentially what you're seeing there in the underlying physiology is the very high levels of those sex hormones are, well, for one, binding up all of your androgens because sex hormone binding globulin goes through the roof. So like free DHT would be quite close to non-existent, I would, I would speculate. Um, but also you have very high levels of estradiol, which will basically flip your hair follicles from the telogen phase to the antigen phase. And mm -hmm. Telogen just means your sort of dormant or, or resting state of your hair follicles. And then the antigen is the growth phase. So you have more follicles in the growth phase that you're going to see you know, evidence as hairs. So it, it may not be uncommon to see a, like a doubling of hair volume you'll hear. Women talk about, you know, they were tripling their ponytail holder and now they're just doubling it. And then yep. the opposite after pregnancy when those hormones sort of come back down. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to look at it. Other hormones like estriol are also high during pregnancy. And um, estrogen receptors, for better or for worse, are a little bit more complicated than androgen receptors. Androgen receptors, there's just one. Estrogen receptors, there's many. There's alpha and beta. There's related receptors, alpha, beta, and gamma. There is a membrane estrogen receptor as well. So perhaps similar to males and females, um, androgens and estrogens are slightly more complicated. But keep in mind, all these estrogen receptors are the same throughout males and females. So um, the physiology may be different, especially after gene transcription, but other than females having two X chromosomes and men having one, um, the actual 
androgen gene itself is relatively similar. So if you look at men, men with lower levels of estrogens do tend to have thinner hair, poor hair quality. And then as you mentioned, the shift of um, kind of like, I think of it as the lifespan of the hair. Um, anagen, uh, catagen, telogen is kind of like the, the teenage phase or the growth phase and then the adult phase and then the kind of end of life phase. And then uh, hairs do reincarnate. The circle of life. Yes. So true circle of life for hairs. Now, if a hair gets stuck, let's say there's both high androgens and low estrogens, as um, is most common in males, then after that telogen phase, it might not reincarnate. It might exit that circle of life, exit samsara or whatever. <laughs> I forget exactly what it's called. Um, but um, then the stem cell can move out of the follicle and then you kind of have that permanent death and then the post-inflammatory changes after that. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that you see in you know, a couple of like stem cell um, absence in the hair follicle sheet there. And then you also have um, fibrosis, which can occur in advanced cases of androgenic alopecia. And you alluded to like, if you see just low estradiol versus if you see high androgens. So the clinical appearance of this would be is someone who has, let's say, a, a normal level of androgens and then just low estradiol, mm -hmm. you're going to see more of a diffuse thinning rather than temple recession, right? Mm -hmm. If you see someone who has sufficient levels of estradiol, but they have a sky-high level of DHT, you may not see diffuse thinning, but you're almost certainly going to observe that progression of the Norwood scale, um, you know, receding of the, the hairline mainly is what people are going to see first. Mm -hmm. uh, but the hair itself will still be very good quality. So you'll have a, a thick Norwood too, versus with something like just low estradiol, not a lot of androgens causing that progression. Then you'll see kind of that diffuse thinning where, you know, under harsh downlighting, you're going to be able to see through the hair, see the scalp. And this is like one of the first things people will notice is like, yes. oh, I was you know, fixing my hair in the bathroom or I was standing under this light. And then I was like, I didn't used to see my scalp and now I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that low estradiol, uh, by the way, the reason why it's called female pattern baldness is often it occurs after menopause during very low estradiol states. Um, and of course, in males as well, I kind of think of it as Gillette pattern baldness because that's what Gillettes tend to get for reasons we don't need to get into at this time. But um, it's definitely uh, about the ratio of estrogens to androgens, similar to many pathologies. So similar to breast cancer, similar to prostate cancer, similar to their effects on lipids and their effects in the liver itself and their effects on SHBG in the liver. The ratio often matters more than the uh, absolute amount themselves. Um, kind of on that note, uh, we've talked about pregnancy. Another state in pregnancy of growth is high levels of um, growth hormones, including HPL, human placental lactogen, um, which is uh, the structure I believe is actually very analogous to growth hormone itself. And it's the main cause of gestational diabetes. Perhaps it contributes to hair growth in pregnancy, but a lot of people ask about um, you know, declining growth hormone and IGF-1 levels as they age, although they're correlated with longevity when it declines, maybe because of um, tumor risk, they certainly can have a big effect on hair growth. Yeah, and this is my understanding of the, the sort of story with, you know, growth hormone and in the field of dermatology, or so I heard it, is before um, it was explicitly illegal to market growth hormone for cosmetic or anti-aging purposes, uh, that dermatologists were using this sort of willy-nilly because you get less wrinkles, 
better hair growth. And they were you know, showing all these photos at these conferences and it was a very exciting thing. And then I believe this was around the time that it was looked at in professional sports. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of got cracked down. And in hindsight, you know, probably a good thing because you don't want to be giving people tons and tons of growth hormone just for a cosmetic purpose because there are uh, long-term risks with that, you know, the biggest of which we tend to think of as like, you know, cancers and the progression of atypical cells to, you know, pro-cancerous cells, cancers, you know, that they're going to metastasize, form tumors and so forth. Um, but then also, you know, things like insulin resistance or mm -hmm. even like a pseudo acromegaly where, you know, somebody's just wanting to, you know, improve their skin aging at that time. It's probably 20, 30 years ago. Yes. Um, but then you know, 20, 30 years later, they may have a you know, sort of a caveman brow where mm -hmm. the, the bones of the forehead will you know, continue to grow um, when they are exposed to that stimulus of like chronic high levels of growth hormone and IGF-1. Mm -hmm. um, hands and feet can grow. People can get fluid retention, um, almost like a pseudo carpal tunnel yeah. um, because of the fluid retention and pressure on the, the median nerve there. So there's lots of problems with just picking like one method and saying, oh, okay, this is like the, the holy grail, which I think is how it was viewed at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and this is just something that, you know, I've discussed with colleagues and you know, heard this story. So I don't know that that's the exact timeline of events, but mm -hmm. that's sort of effects that you do see. So if somebody truly does have a you know, growth hormone deficiency, I would imagine that their, you know, growth rate of their hair and their hair quality is not going to be as good as if they had, let's say, a you know, normal level of you know, growth hormone and IGF-1, um, similar to what you would see in a state of like malnutrition, mm -hmm. right? Because that's going to suppress IGF-1 as well. Mm -hmm. About 30 years ago, the New England Journal of Medicine published an article regarding growth hormone for the non-growth hormone deficient patient. And that article was quite pivotal in um, kind of upregulating the interest in off-label growth hormone use. And of course, um, then, uh, probably about 20 years ago, so for about 10 years, you saw a lot of off-label uh, growth hormone, omnitropin, nortotropin risk, and maybe you still do with liver king and whatnot. But um, now that's since down titrated, now a lot of the questions that we get are regarding what we call GHRPs or peptides. So um, when it comes to the peptides that are growth agonists, we kind of consider TB500 and uh, GHK copper peptide as non-GHRP growth agonists. PPC157, to some degree, it's more it's more VEGF, which we might talk about more when we get into PRP. But the GHRPs are in general ibutamorin, ipomorelin um, as ghrelin agonists, and then CJC, um, tesamorelin, and sermorelin as GHRH analogs. So those can increase growth hormone, and there are, I'm sure there are plenty of stories of Reddit um, regarding this, but these would convey very similar risks to HGH use. Yeah, so just because something's a, a novel class and now that these are more popular um, than synthetic growth hormone, doesn't mean that they are a free lunch or that they are they're risk-free. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if people are looking at this as a potential vector, especially as people increase in age and we know that growth hormone level does go down, mm -hmm. um, it's really that quality of life is the metric you're looking at, not your rate of hair growth. Yes. Um, just in, in terms of like the, the risk and benefits of the treatment. So, you know, someone that's got a cancer that runs every direction in their family and everybody gets this cancer and they're like, uh, should I take growth hormone for my hair loss or a growth hormone peptide for my hair loss? Mm -hmm. The answer is probably not. Yep. That's a pretty good summary. 
Um, one other note on these, and then we'll move into thyroid hormone, um, is we do see that they induce a state of, I, I call it reversible or GHRP-induced diabetes. So you could have diabetic level uh, fasting glucoses. You could go to your doctor and have two different fasting glucoses test in the diabetic level, um, or even do a glucose tolerance test like we do in pregnancy. And just like pregnancy in that human placental lactogen can induce gestational diabetes, those can induce diabetes just from the insulin resistance that you mentioned. Yeah. And I, thinking back on this, we touched on this topic just briefly on a previous podcast mm -hmm. about the um, lipolysis that's induced by higher levels of growth hormone causing insulin resistance. And I, I threw in some terms there like um, TPN, which people are like, what is that? So TPM is uh, total parental oral parenteral nutrition. Yes. So when you're in the hospital and you are not eating anything and you can't have a you know feeding tube put in, maybe you have a, a fistula, mm -hmm. um, which is essentially, you know, your intestinal or, or intestinal bioproducts, whatever the food you digest in is in your intestine leaking out into the abdominal cavity. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't put food in there because it's just going to leak out. It's going to get infected, et cetera. So they essentially use, you know, amino acids, um, sugars, and fatty acids and those are infused into a large central vein. And when you do this, you induce insulin resistant because the fatty acids are ever present in the bloodstream. Mm. Um, and ibutamorin seems to be the worst in terms of causing this. And I think that's because it's not a replication of your growth hormone pulse. So Correct. when people using synthetic growth hormone, they're typically taking, oh yeah, I take it before bed or every other night before bed, you know, empty stomach, you're not eating at night, hopefully. Yeah. Um, same thing with the peptides, and they tend to work better on an empty stomach. Um, and then with the ibutamorin, you kind of have this bleed of growth hormone, and you know, people are not going to just not eat food. Yeah. So you have this kind of permanent state of, you know, it's an actual insulin resistance, but it makes you look very similar to a person with diabetes in the blood work. So you can see, as you mentioned, those very elevated levels of, you know, they even fasting glucose and, you know, somebody who's a young and healthy male in their 20s, 30s, or, or women who are taking these as well. Fortunately, a lot of these states tend to be reversible, assuming that the offending cause is removed. Similar to how during pregnancy, if you, uh, like, after delivery in the postpartum state, you usually wait at least six weeks to check. And in general, after about six weeks, the state's resolved. You might do another glucose tolerance test. Of note, after gestational diabetes, about half of those women go on to develop diabetes later in life. It's unknown whether or not taking a GHRP for say nine months in your 20s, like ibutamorin, will have the same effect. But um, if your fasting glucoses are high, and definitely use a CGM to check them, not to get off too, too off topic, um, that's the case. And to continue along with the great hair and pregnancy theme, let's talk about thyroid hormone. Um, we definitely see topical preparations with T3 in them, all sorts of things. Um, but one of the important like things to remember is that you have inactive and active thyroid hormone. If you're hypothyroid, then that's considered a telogen effluvium where you're kind of shedding a whole bunch of those uh, hairs at once. And this happens common after pregnancy. During pregnancy, your thyroid requirement goes up by about 30 to 50% in the first trimester. HCG actually binds the TSH receptor and usually accounts for all of this. But if your thyroid is borderline kind of struggling on how much it's able to produce, 
Sometimes that increased manufacturing capability, if you will, puts it over the edge. That's why so many females need to start a thyroid medication in the first trimester to prevent miscarriage. It happens to help hair growth as well. So if that's the case and you start a thyroid med, that's going to have a Norwood zero rating of, um, you know, even a huge difference of improving hair quality. Yeah. So if somebody is profoundly hypothyroid and that is the root cause of their hair loss, which, you know, you should check more than just a DHT level and treat that because if you're hypothyroid, you could be, you know, barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. So I, I agree with that Norwood zero rating for treating the underlying cause. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, thyroid is something that's really interesting. Um, the HCG doses that some people take for, you know, like HCG monotherapy, mm -hmm. uh, for those that younger guys that have hypogonadism and, you know, we're giving them that luteinizing hormone analog that also can bind to the, you know, as you mentioned, the, the TSH receptor. It doesn't seem to stimulate clinically meaningful amounts of thyroid hormones, but I wouldn't say that that could never happen. Because Correct. just because something is, you know, binding there, um, doesn't mean that there will be an effect and doesn't mean that there won't be an effect. Mm -hmm. It probably comes down again to that individual's sensitivity and also their you know, thyroid capacity for uh, producing mm -hmm. thyroid hormones. So someone that has plenty of um, nutrition, micronutrients, mm -hmm. and, and their nutrient status is very good, has more of a capacity for producing mm -hmm. thyroid hormone under you know a period of stress or a stimulus like um, the HCG. Mm -hmm. For those patients out there that are on HCG for fertility or whatnot, we do challenge you to um, take well, one, a one-year pregnancy test. It may be positive. <laughs> um, use that knowledge for good, good reasons, of course, and also to get a quantitative HCG. See how high taking HCG actually spikes up your serum HCG. Has a short half-life, but it does pulse. And then compare that to your um, partner's HCG during the first trimester, which will double every 48 hours at least and spike up extremely high. So that just says to the point that yes, during pregnancy, HCG is extremely high in the first trimester, as long as you're not very, very early on. Yeah. And that's a way that, you know, some people, um, will, you know, you test their HCG potency. You know, if there's questions about the supply chain, um, you know, they'll say, well, this, you know, pharmaceutical HCG, I'm not feeling it. Is this like just me noceboing myself mm -hmm. um, because I read that there was a quality control issue or am I actually getting the same blood level that I got on my last dose of the pregnant? Mm -hmm. um, as far as we know, compounded HCG is no longer around because mm -hmm. of the reclassification of the biologic. So if you're not using, you know, brand name pregnant, you know, then there could be some quality control issues there. It's a good way to look at it. Um, I guess we'll give HCG a Norwood 3. Of note, when you do start HCG, you often have a bit of a, a telogenic shed, if you will. And it's the same way for many hormonal treatments. For example, TRT or even estrogen. Um, then often you have a shed, you wait two to three months, and then it comes back. And this can be said for thyroid replacement as well, which you mentioned, you know, um, you know people I've seen before, they have a sky high TSH and they have no idea they have hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. And then you put them on the thyroid replacement and they have a shed of hair. Like what's going on? You know, yeah. I, I thought thyroid was good for hair growth, but it's very hard to get people to think in windows of like six to 12 months when they're evaluating cosmetic outcomes like hair loss. Um, and I see this all the time on you know the forums, you know, hair loss or Reddit forums talking about hair loss where people are like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, 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 and this, and then they're changing things every couple of weeks. And then yeah, it's not good. they're kind of 
almost constantly triggering the potential for telogen effluvium. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's going to get that from every change, but I think there's a, a high penetrance of that in that specific population. Yes. And it's great that they're trying to preventatively doing something and um, often early on in the stages of male pattern baldness as well. But reincarnation does take a long time. So um, you have to be patient and sometimes it's just difficult to wait that long. If you start a treatment and you're not having a shed, then it is very likely that you will have a temporary shed and of course talk to your healthcare provider about this. Speaking of telogen effluvium, um, if I have a low serum iron, does that mean that I'm having a telogen effluvium or do I need to take iron? Or let's just chat about iron. Yes, you should take as much iron as you can and only rely on the serum level. You don't need to get any silly binding capacities or ferritin levels. Mm -hmm. um, that's just your doctor trying to make extra money from big iron kickbacks. Yeah, big iron kickbacks <laughs> can be pretty serious. So, But in all seriousness, um, serum iron has a lot to do with inflammation or if you're sick or uh, a lot of different reasons. That's why we check a ferritin, which also happens to be an acute phase reactant. So ferritin can also be falsely elevated in disease states, or not falsely elevated, but it is elevated in disease not states. Not reflective of the actual iron stores in the body. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a brief technical glitch there, but we were discussing iron studies, and it's very simple if you have a healthy person in front of you, it's not in an inflammatory state. And we talked about um, you know, college-age women, particularly these athletes having lower levels of uh, ferritin is the marker that you're looking at there. Mm -hmm. And when you're evaluating a ferritin, you certainly want to look at that in the context of your iron saturation and also your iron binding capacities. Mm -hmm. So um, we were saying in an average like cross-country running female population, if you give them an iron supplement, you're going to see run times go down because most of them have either a clinical or subclinical um, deficiency of iron. So the kind of look at in the performance studies is if your ferritin level is below 50, you probably tend to benefit in terms of your athletic performance, yes. energy levels by supplementing to bring that up. And we've talked about the optimal way to supplement in the past, some information on our social media about that. Um, but for hair growth, you know, if someone has an iron deficiency, you correct the underlying cause. I would give treating iron deficiency an Orwood zero as yeah. far as a hair loss treatment. Yes. You probably get the same effect if you just start putting Rogaine or minoxidil on your head, but you're not treating the underlying cause. Mm -hmm. So ferritin gets complicated whenever you have inflammatory states because ferritin will be elevated, but it's not necessarily reflective of your iron stores. So you may see an elevated ferritin and also an elevated um, iron binding capacity, for example. Yes. So uh, low iron saturation. So that would point to iron deficiency. Um, and this is actually being explored in some chronic inflammatory states like chronic kidney disease or congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. And there are some societies out there who are reconsidering evaluating the normal ferritin levels for these patients um, because it's like, okay, you're working them up for iron deficiency. And, you know, the ferritin level is normal. It's like oh, 200, 300. Mm -hmm. um, but they've, they've thought about maybe they move the ferritin low range from like 30 to 100 for those patients. But then you also have the idea that what if it's excess iron accumulation that's driving some of this dysfunction? So it's sort of a gray area and an area that's being explored, but just points to like what on the surface is a very simple topic. If you are looking at different individuals can be very different, even in the way that you interpret the labs. So if someone's like, oh yeah, my ferritin is high on Reddit, um, probably shouldn't be 
taking advice from anyone on Reddit as far as how you should take your iron, whether you mm -hmm. should take iron and how to interpret your specific iron studies. Yes. We love talking about iron. Um, in future, we'll talk more about hemochromatosis, hereditary and not. We'll talk more about iron accumulation and hemosiderin deposits in the brain and neurodegenerative disease. And we will also talk about thalassemia, a very common condition um, in which regulation of iron, but also red blood cells and um, concern for iron deposition in tissues as well is also of concern. So that's a good summary of iron. Yeah. Uh, let's move I do to want to add one thing that you said, iron in the brain, and the brain is quite close to the scalp. So I would think more iron in the brain would be good for hair growth. In no seriousness at all. Yeah. I just had to make that joke there. Yes. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. On our next topic, um, I guess we can just say like micronutrient status is kind of the umbrella that these mm -hmm. things are in. Uh, you had a really good conversation with our, our friend um, Alec McCarthy, the yes. regenerative med PhD. Uh, and this is something that is sort of well known in the dermatology sphere that your response to any treatment is going to be driven in large part by how well the underlying nutrient status is. So yes. um, looking at things like zinc, I know that there are some um, papers out there that look at like response to hair growth interventions and serum levels of zinc. Mm -hmm. But um, I think you know a little bit more about this. So kind of, I guess, a high level overview of what nutrient people should be testing or what should they should be making sure that they're consuming in their diet at least. Mm -hmm. Zinc, selenium, vitamin D, biotin would probably be the big ones. Um, as Alec was discussing, and he has published that study now that we were referring to um, regarding uh, micronutrient supplementation for dermal healing, not specific to the scalp, but the scalp is obviously part of the skin and the hair follicles and sebaceous glands and supporting cells are all part of the skin. So it's really the scalp health. And while we're thinking of it, if you're applying products, then yes, you apply them to the scalp, not to the hair themselves. Because you know, yeah. you, you water the, yes, you water the roots of the plant. You don't water the leaves in yeah. most cases. So for the intervention of applying hair loss products to the scalp, not the hair, I give that a Norwood zero. Yes. So, um, yep. That's a, now that we've said that, um, regarding nutrients, zinc is a cousin to iron. Um, zinc and actually copper as well have many regulatory functions, um, not just as coenzymes, but also uh, like helping certain medications um, have more efficacy or last longer, for example, which you may get into in the future. Um, and then uh, vitamin D is a steroid hormone. So it's a sterol just like estrogen, just like testosterone. It's important for balance between both of them. And it's also important for balance between calcium and phosphorus specifically. And then I think we also mentioned selenium, important coenzyme for thyroid hormone. So um, selenium, that's why some people consume Brazil nuts, um, but it's in a lot of different multivitamins and supplements. And um, it's kind of the same, uh, one of its main mechanisms would be converting T4 to T3 inside the cell, kind of like 5-alpha reductase. There's three different isoenzymes of deiodinase, converting T4 to T3. 
which is the active enzyme. So if you have a selenium deficiency, then you likely have a, even with a normal TSH and normal free T4, it is possible to have a, um, a telogen effluvium type like you have hypothyroidism. Yeah, and I think that's important because nutrient status, looking at like the 2020 to 2025 healthy people, kind of the data preceding that and what people are eating and aren't eating, uh, most people are not getting much, if any, selenium. Uh, mm -hmm. Really, not many people are eating fruits and vegetables yep. or whole grains. A lot of people are just eating, you know, refined grains and, you know, high sugar diets. And then the only about 50% of people are even getting, you know, adequate amounts of what would be considered uh, minimally processed uh, meats, dairy, eggs, things like that, yep. that do have good nutrient density. Mm -hmm. So I would say that we, like, People ask, you know, why are we seeing more androgenic alopecia now? And it's, it's sort of multifactorial, right? Mm -hmm. And it, you have a poor nutrient status is one. Um, and then you have the insulin resistance there. Definitely. And that insulin resistance is going to essentially be the opposite of like the pregnancy changes we talked about with sex hormone binding globulin. So you have someone who, you know, insulin resistant, you know, pre-diabetes or diabetes, they're going to tend to have a quite low level of sex hormone binding globulin. And... There's a paper actually I just saw, I think this morning when I was looking over some of this stuff, um, it was, came out of China, I believe, but they saw that the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages was really correlated with uh, the onset and frequency mm -hmm. of hair thinning, hair loss yeah. in men. So, of course, it's just correlation, but I think we have a lot of mechanistic data to support that mm -hmm. there's a causation there. It's not just that bald people like soda more. Um, but that if you're consuming high amounts of sugar-sweetened beverages, you're much more likely to be insulin-resistant. And then the sequelae of that, having the androgenic alopecia or hair thinning manifest sooner. Mm -hmm. While we're talking about insulin, of course, it has many mechanisms, the binding to the insulin receptor in the liver, and that's effect on SHBG, as you mentioned, and also kind of amplifying the downstream effects of the androgen receptor inside the cell itself. While we're talking about SHBG, how about SARMs? Could they potentially lead to androgenic alopecia directly or indirectly? Yes. I mean, it, this is something that um, is not a good intervention. I would uh, rate this if you're using SARMs to try to treat androgenic alopecia uh, in a traditional sense. That is yes. where you're taking them orally and suppressing your own hormone production and wrecking sex hormone binding globulin. I would rate them a Norwood 7. So we were just chatting about you know, the nutrient status in um, androgenic alopecia and other health conditions. And people in general are not getting very nutrient-dense foods. Fruits, vegetables are basically non-existent in most people's diets. But what is very common in the everyday diet is sugar-sweetened beverages. Mm. And people drink way too many of these. And I can't see a, you know, health benefit, we see a lot of evidence of you know, health harm. Um, a lot of things that make people feel good in the short term are going to have detrimental long-term health effects. So this is a paper that I was just looking at, I believe this morning, um, came out a couple of days ago, I believe, a study published out of China that found a pretty strong association between uh, male pattern baldness and the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages. And this was just a correlational study. So they don't imply that the sugar-sweetened beverages are causative. Um, but based on all the mechanistic data we have with insulin resistance, suppressing sex hormone binding globulin, and even seeing, you know, in metabolic syndrome, early emergence of male pattern baldness in females, when you see that SHBG low, let alone in men, I think that it's safe to assume that it's not just that, you know, balding people like 
soda and sugar-sweetened beverages more, but that there's some causality there where people who consume more sugar-sweetened beverages are more likely to have insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and then those individuals are more likely to experience androgenic alopecia uh, because they have more inflammation and more free DHT. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I agree with that notion as well. I think it's a good correlation study. There's a, and people do know that one of my favorite diets is the zero liquid calorie diet. So perhaps I am a bit biased as well. Everybody's biased about everything. I enjoy the correlation between endurance athletes, specifically runners and higher consumption of alcoholic beverages. So there's a lot of correlations that can be found. Perhaps there would even be a correlation between um, individuals who do a lot of, a lot of cardio zone two and zone three and slightly higher SHBGs, not pathologically higher, and less male pattern baldness. So there's a lot of lifestyle interventions, um, just like any other condition that can make a difference for male pattern baldness. Agreed. And I think that brings us to the medications, which people that have probably been sitting through this have been like, come on, let's get to medications. Or perhaps they clicked the timestamp and just skipped ahead. So here we are talking about the medications and interventions um, because there are some non-pharmacological therapies also for mm -hmm. treating male pattern baldness. So at the very top of our list here, we have one that people, most people have not heard of, and I haven't even heard people discuss this in, you know, the hair loss space on YouTube or influencers, mm -hmm. uh, but neuromodulator for hair loss. So this is things like Botox, for example. Mm -hmm. And I know that the scalp tension idea of hair loss, that theory did gain some uh, gain some traction, no pun intended, because there were traction devices sold to try and decrease scalp tension. I don't believe yeah. those were particularly successful. Mm -hmm. um, but scalp tension, people are like, oh yeah, just massage your scalp and then your hair loss will go away. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't believe that's the case, but scalp tension certainly is found to be higher in uh, balding scalp versus non-balding scalp. Mm -hmm. So there is a role there. And we'll kind of go down, you know, there's multiple mechanisms, as you mentioned, you know, like growth agonism versus something that is decreasing inflammation versus decreasing intervention, uh, decreasing androgens. So mm -hmm. there's all sorts of these things. And the scalp tension, um, in our clinic, this is something that we you know, do for patients. Some mm -hmm. people very strongly want to do everything non-hormonally that they can. They don't want to um, mess with DHD, and that's fine because there are multiple options. So in our clinic, we use a, a different botulinum toxin that uh, does not have the same immunogenicity as brand name Botox. And there's actually some clinical data on these studies. So, you know, you definitely want to go to someone who knows the underlying anatomy and is not going to you know, inject the Botox into a you know, blood vessel, cause complications, and uh, someone who's not going to cause you know, like your, your forehead to sag down if they're paralyzing the wrong muscles or ptosis, mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. So we'll go ahead and look, pull up some of the photos now of these before and afters. And it's important to remember that not everybody is going to be a responder Correct. to every intervention. And just like anything else, it is truly individualized medicine. If you have more scalp tension or more muscle activation, um, some studies on botulinum toxin or neuromodulators actually do an EMG, almost like a, um, a, you know, you're looking at the actual activation of the muscle and the strength of it. So even if it's not paralyzed, it is still not as tense or has less resting tone. Yeah, this is very popular in the, the field of aesthetics where it's that um, strength of the muscle and the repeated folding of the skin that leads mm -hmm. to the development of wrinkles. And if you have 
you know, weaker muscles, like you know, somebody with ALS, for example, you know, very weak facial muscles, they're not going to tend to develop those you know, same wrinkles and kind of emulate that with the neuromodulator. Mm -hmm. One correlation or like clinical picture of a severe candidate or someone who would perhaps be a very good candidate for this early on is uh, cutis gyrata. Um, and in this case, you almost have a, a brain or gy gyrite look to your scalp. And very, very frequently, these individuals are also bald. So that's just a tense scalp muscles that are bunching up skin and there's excess skin. And that leads to hypoxic tissue damage and uh, follicle death. Yeah, this is a really interesting condition because you see higher levels of brain development or pituitary abnormalities in this. So you may see some power lifters, for example, yep. or bodybuilders who have these um, you know, these folds that you'll see on the outside of the scalp and you know, they may excel because they had a, for example, like a growth hormone secreting pituitary tumor or, or mm -hmm. something of that nature. So it's something that you'll see once in a while. And once you see it, you'll recognize it every time. Yes. So here are the photos of, um, hair growth after treatment with neuromodulator. And it's important to note, this is like 24 weeks. So you know, almost six months after they had the treatment done. Again, we talk about thinking about hair loss in terms of like at least four months, probably six to 12, and you know, maybe even more like, you know, 18 months if we're looking at some of the 5-alpha reductase medications. But uh, this person was clearly a good responder. The next photo here right below, this person did not respond quite as well, and it was labeled as a poor response. So this person likely didn't have the high scalp tension um, at baseline, or perhaps there were you know, nutrient status variables there that underlying were not addressed. Mm -hmm. And here we have a hyper responder. Yep, great response. Dosing for neuromodulators is usually every four months or so, sometimes sooner, sometimes less often. It can potentially be prolonged by uh, supplementation with zinc, as our friend Alec McCarthy mentioned, and um, also, paralysis is not necessarily the effect that we're going for with this treatment. It is just less uh, firing, less tense muscles in the scalp. Yeah, and this paper actually provides the injection pattern that was used and where they put the units and how many units they use. So mm -hmm. we'll link to that in the description for people who want to look at that and get even a little bit more granular. Mm -hmm. As far as our next medication that we'll talk about, um, I guess we can talk about minoxidil a little bit. Um, so, you know, minoxidil is one of the oldest hair loss treatments. It's been around forever. Um, it works. Um, but you'll have people say that, you know, you don't want to use minoxidil unless you're also addressing the androgens. Uh, and I think that's, you know, individualized, like we talked about. Some people want a, like, non-hormonal hair loss stack, um, which, you know, is basically, if you're looking at the long-term efficacy of something, is what you really want to use as your metric, like, how long is this going to work for this person if they don't do you know, anything else, if they're not using another intervention? Yep. So I guess minoxidil, as far as you know, the medication, it can be taken orally, it can be applied topically. Um, it has multiple mechanisms of action, yep. some of which are you know, really interesting. Uh, vasodilation, um, so it's going to increase blood flow to the scalp area. Um, it actually was originally a blood pressure medication. Mm -hmm. That's basically an acute a vasodilatory response. Um, there's some thought that it may um, decrease the inappropriate collagen or dysregulated collagen production in the scalp. Um, type 1 collagen specifically seems to accumulate in cases of androgenic alopecia. 
Um, and people that have androgenic alopecia will tend to have a you know, thicker um, scalp mm -hmm. um, because of that collagen deposition over time. Um, the dose is studied. It has been you know, all over the place. You could see you know, early studies as minoxidil was like as low as 2%. Now, you know, 5% is pretty much the standard and you know, dermatologists quite frequently will, you know, to have even women use the 5% just because it's much more effective, you know, in a topical form. Mm -hmm. uh, of note, minoxidil can be absorbed systemically and you can detect it in a serum. Um, I think a good rule of thumb is 5% minoxidil twice a day, apply it all over. Is it going to accumulate in the serum about as much as uh, one to two milligrams of oral minoxidil and that can affect serum prolactin. So I guess it's, it's somewhat hormonally active. Um, depending on the person, could be a clinically significant effect or not. Um, and then, as you mentioned, there is a genetic response. So some people get their genes checked for this to see if they'll respond to it. Some people take it with tretinoin to improve the response, um, although we'll get more into like tretinoin and corticosteroids <clears throat> with minoxidil later because there are certainly downsides to that as well as there is with anything else. So. I guess in general for minoxidil, we give that a Norwood 1. Yeah, Norwood 1. It's not a, a perfect treatment, uh, but it is a fairly good treatment. Um, you know, doses that we prescribe and doses that are studied, you know, topical is all over the place. Um, oral minoxidil has been something that has been studied and has gotten more attention and has, you know, probably three or four papers that, you know, good efficacy. Um, mm -hmm. Tolerability varies from person to person. Um, you do have a higher risk of side effects when you're taking the oral minoxidil because you're getting a much higher systemic exposure. Um, and as you refer to sulfur transferase, this is something that may be a better option for people who are you know, non-responders to topical minoxidil yep. or who are just you know, not going to apply something to their scalp for the next mm -hmm. you know, 10, 20, however many years that they want to have that extra growth. So oral minoxidil has been studied anywhere from a quarter milligram all the way up to about five milligrams per day is the highest that I've seen with mm -hmm. you know good efficacy. I know some people are taking it prescribed off label at even higher doses, but I mm -hmm. think you know five milligrams has some pretty good data to support um, the safety of that dose. And um, sometimes you may not even need that most that much. Mm -hmm. You could do something like two point five in between. Yep. So you know this is something that you look at the patient. Do they tend to have a softer blood pressure? Nope. Are they more likely to have side effects? Do they already have some fluid retention at baseline um, that could be worsened or you know hair growth so in inappropriate places? Yep. So you take minoxidil, you will have more hair growth you know, everywhere. So arms, legs, back. You know, for men, it, this doesn't tend to be bothersome. But when you're talking about women and hair growth, they yep. don't like hair in unwanted places. Yes. That's a good way to look at it. Um, it can also be potentially useful for beard growth. There's different beard, gro beard growth protocols. Um, perhaps that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, many people have noted that anecdotally and there's some you know, interesting things going on in the, the Reddit sphere as always. Yes. So yeah, minoxidil and um, go ahead. Couple final thoughts on minoxidil after your first six or so months. You've, you've gotten most of the benefit or most of the um, like transformative benefit from minoxidil. So changing to a less frequent dosing, like once a day instead of twice, or changing to oral instead of twice a day can improve your quality of life from like a not having to do a twice a day topical regimen standpoint. And then also microneedling in particular, uh, again, as Alec McCarthy mentioned, is um, synergistic and combines well with minoxidil treatment.
Yeah, and we have some studies that we'll you know get into when we go to microneedling, but basically this is a you know the durable effect is what I was alluding to earlier when you say okay, well someone doesn't want to use anything hormonal is minoxidil just a waste of time for them at a certain point? And this study here that we're looking at it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like even at five years they're still above their baseline hair count. Mm -hmm. So. If I have androgenic alopecia, I know that if I don't do anything, then on average, I'm going to have a trend downwards in hair density, vellus hair count, so all those sorts of metrics. Mm -hmm. uh, but if somebody starts on minoxidil today, five years from now, you know, on average, they're going to have more hair then than they do right now at this present moment. Mm -hmm. So I think that that will you know, buy people a bit of you know, reassurance mm -hmm. uh, because if you say, well, I certainly can't get a hair transplant right now. Yes. I can at least buy some time over the next five years, provided that I tolerate minoxidil well. And then I know that I'll still be ahead of where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's um, something that we look at when we look at like long-term efficacy. So uh, very mm -hmm. few and far between as far as studies that are looking at something cosmetic in five years out. But yep. this one here seems to show that there's a durable effect. Yep. And our next medication is ketoconazole and uh, not ketoconazole pills, but ketoconazole <laughs> shampoo. Mm -hmm. So over the counter, this is, you know, Nizarel, or I think there's a number of other brands. There. Yes. Um, and this is something that people have sort of caught on to. It has some weak antiandrogenic activity. Um, and there's also a prescription strength, which is at 2%, which is where the studies have been done to show um, improvement in, you know, hair growth and androgenic alopecia and even uh, female pattern hair loss. Yep. So basically the mechanism of action there is that it has some mild anti-androgenic activity and it's also going to um, be antifungal. So if somebody has mm -hmm. uh, underlying even like subclinical fungal growth that's maybe inhibiting the um, the hair growth cycle there, causing inflammation, they're going to be helpful in that context. Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily on the topic of ketoconazole, but um, in a lot of these hair loss trials, they try to control for uh, things like uh, seborrheic dermatitis, which can be a yeah. confounder. Um, and I know people are itching to know, well, what is seborrheic dermatitis and, and how do they control for this? Uh, so they use a product called T-Gel. Uh, it's a shampoo by Neutrogena mm -hmm. that treats uh, seborrheic dermatitis, can be helpful in like scalp psoriasis and other inflammatory conditions. So, you know, it, it's not a great smelling shampoo from what I've been told, not particularly like hydrating, mm -hmm. volumizing, or anything like that, but it will address some of those other you know, potential factors that could be underlying there. So something people may consider. Speaking of great smelling shampoos, I love peppermint oil and peppermint essential oil smell. And our friend Derek from More Plates, More Dates um, made one, uh, partially after talking to us as well, but it has ketoconazole and some topical caffeine, another weak topical antiandrogen, and peppermint oil, a very strong amount, which I like. So if that is something that sounds like you might like, you can look at Intelligent Shop to get it. But that being said, there's a lot of ketoconazoles and it also comes in prescription in 2%, of course. One other note, um, not all Nizrils have ketoconazole in them, yeah. which I did not know until recently. So if you do choose to get brand name Nizril, make sure it actually has ketoconazole as an active ingredient. Interesting. Yeah, so definitely look at the label, um, just like when you're going to pick out what foods you're eating, you want to know what's in them. Uh, you won't be eating any shampoo, but you want to know what you're applying. Yep. Ketoconazole is a great thing to have around because as you mentioned, subclinical fungal or even bacterial infections, and you can use it on your whole body. 
So it's not just your scalp that you need to use it all. Most common side effect is excessive frizziness and you do not have to apply it every day in order for it to help. So I think nearly everyone should consider adding in some sort of topical ketoconazole, even once a week, even twice a month to help. Yeah. So how many Norwoods are we giving ketoconazole shampoo? I'd say maybe two. Maybe rated One. as a Norwood two. Yeah. It's a good adjunct. I wouldn't use it as a, a monotherapy. Agreed. And one thing that I will note as we look at the study photos here is that people want to make sure that they apply this and leave it in place for a reasonable amount of time. Probably closer to 10 minutes is going to be yes. more effective. Yep. Um, I think studies have looked anywhere five, eight, 10 minutes. Um, this is a head-to-head -head trial with a 2% minoxidil. Um, and I believe this was a uh, ketoconazole topical therapy, not necessarily a shampoo. But okay. as you can see here in this female pattern hair loss that the minoxidil um, obviously does what minoxidil does and the hair was yep. improved on both you know, global appearance and then also under the trichoscopic examination. Yep. Um, and you see uh, a similar response, probably not quite as potent, but you see a similar response with the um, topical ketoconazole here. And one of the things that the you know, authors of the study were noting is that, yeah, there is thought to even be a, you know, having androgens can aggravate even female pattern hair loss. Um, it's not just specific to the male pattern baldness. So you can see effective in women here as well. So that is ketoconazole. And next up we have topical finasteride, topical dutasteride. So mm -hmm. these have kind of come into the limelight in the past two or three years, really interesting. Um, I don't know that it was known widely at first that people, uh, that the finasteride that people were using is going systemic, Yeah. but that very quickly became apparent. Um, and yes. is that the reason that people weren't having side effects from topical finasteride is because they didn't know that it went systemic? It's interesting. Partly. Um, so another theory behind this is that when you apply it topically, it takes much longer to reach a, a, a semblance of steady state. So there wasn't like a light switch on and off effect like it can happen with oral administration. So that makes more sense to me. Um, you know, there's obviously a placebo and nocebo effect to every medication and supplement that we take. Kind of similar to how Saul Palmetto is now having uh, more adverse effects that we see as well. Um, salt palmetto also being a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor and actually mm -hmm. having multiple different, um, I believe, fatty acids that inhibit different 5-alpha reductase isoenzymes. So depending on your salt palmetto type and also just the plant itself, it could be stronger or weaker. But with the topical finasteride, it is a relatively small molecule size. Both finasteride and dutasteride are very lipophilic particles. We just recently did a post on this as well, including the pharmacokinetics of dutasteride, for which we got, I think, literally hundreds of questions after the Huberman podcast. But um, when you look at a topical preparation, you're looking at several things. The, the thinness of the skin, if there's any breaks in the skin, if there's scabs, if you're microneedling or you're doing mesotherapy, um, is how lipophilic is the particle and the particle size. So a good rule of thumb, finasteride uh, definitely goes systemic, I'd say, in everyone um, to a clinically significant degree. Dutasteride very likely does go systemic, but in extremely small amounts, and it is heavily 
uh, it varies heavily from person to person. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And depending on the concentration and the volume that you're applying of topical finasteride, and this is very difficult to parse out in the literature because a lot of times they just say it's this percent and it was an application. Mm -hmm. And we don't know if that was half a milliliter, a milliliter, two milliliters, you know, how, how much volume people are applying. Um, but the studies that are there, you know, at a, a 0.25% concentration, yes. they saw, and this was not quite replicated, but they saw basically equal suppression versus mm -hmm. oral. It got you down to about 70% lower than your DHT baseline. And then when they went back and did a kind of graded study where increasing concentrations of finasteride, um, and then they check the serum levels and they see what corresponds. I mean, that could be anywhere from 25% you know, to up to about 50%, depending on the mm -hmm. dose that you're taking. Um, and one of the things with finasteride that's really interesting orally is you, you get most of the effect out of a very low dose. So like a quarter milligram per day for most people is going to lower their serum level about 70%, just as much as taking the standard, you know, mm -hmm. one milligram per day or quartering the Proscar and taking 1.25 wood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing about comparing finasteride and dutasteride, as I believe we've already discussed in another podcast, finasteride inhibits two of the three isoenzymes very strongly and dutasteride inhibits two of the three isoenzymes very strongly. So the uh, intracellular DHT, the intrachronology of both of them matters a ton. For example, finasteride strongly inhibits the main isoenzyme in genital skin, but not in regular skin. So your body's feedback mechanisms, possibly partly just to have to do with androgen receptor density, might not be upregulated because in some skin, uh, in some of your skin, it is having normal amounts of androgen receptor activation. So if you have three buckets, and let's say these are three skin types, one is uh, hair follicle, one is um, you know uh, non-genital skin, and then one is your prostate, finasteride might have two of the buckets completely dry and then one completely full, whereas dutasteride at an equal dose causing an equal decrease in serum DHT might have all the buckets half full. So we think that this accounts for a lot of the differences in the studies, which look at side effects of oral finasteride versus oral dutasteride. Yeah, it's certainly something to consider. Um, dutasteride in some studies is actually more effective for androgenic alopecia. And then, well, in most studies, it's more effective for androgenic alopecia because it's lowering DHT more. Yep. But there's also some studies where it seems to even carry a lower rate of side effects compared to finasteride, which mm -hmm. is kind of counterintuitive if the only variable you're taking into account is, oh, the DHT level is lower, therefore there must be more side effects. Yes. Now, certainly can have similar side effects, you know, things like um, loss of libido, erectile dysfunction, gynecomastia. Um, the kind of risk of high-grade prostate cancers has, you know, been debunked a bit, mm. where it's just that these people are, you know, having a lower PSA. So when that PSA is higher, it's typically going to be a more aggressive you know, prostate yes. cancer that's caught. And you know, some of the interesting papers you know, with dutasteride specifically in, in the active, uh, I think they called it the DAST, yes. dutasteride active surveillance trial, mm. follow prostate cancer patients for three years, either you know, doing nothing or uh, taking dutasteride and the dutasteride slowed the growth of those androgen-dependent tumors. So uh, 
something that I guess um, not a lot of people have you know, been aware of or talk about, but it seems to have a you know net positive effect on um, those atypical cells that would progress to mm-hmm. prostate cancer, which most men die with a prostate cancer, but not from it. Yeah. If you look at the model of aging being somewhat pathologic and BPH and even prostate cancer being a normal part of the aging process, say you live to 110 or 120, where you have you know probably a 90% chance of developing prostate cancer if you make it past 100, then dutasteride or in general, um, lower free DHT and lower DHT will prolong that to an older age. It won't necessarily prevent it, but it'll prevent it from happening so soon. Whereas excess androgens, for example, um, being on TRT may skew those mostly low-grade prostate cancers that you'll live with but not die from to an earlier age. Yeah, I think it has a potential to adjust it on the timeline, Mm -hmm. uh, but not necessarily being 100% causative. So you're kind of thinking of it in a bit of a nuanced way like that. Um, To go back to topical finasteride for a moment, uh, when we were kind of doing our literature review for this podcast, there was a really interesting proposition uh, by a number of uh, MDs on this study and uh, MD-PhD that was on it. And the passage talks about topical finasteride and androgenic alopecia in females. And the proposition is that it is possible that topical finasteride would follow the same path as topical retinoid derivatives which are pregnancy category C drugs. Um, Their parent systemic drug like Accutane is a class X drug. That's why there's multiple forms and monitoring and double contraception and nobody takes that. Yes. Uh, That's the same way finasteride is. And their proposition was that um, topical finasteride would be considered relatively safe for use in pregnant females if the benefits outweigh the risk. And I found this to be quite know, absurd and bewildering. I, I tried to like look and see like, well, in what context are they talking about here? And, you know, this is the same paper where they showed that um, serum DHT levels were reduced, you know, from 24 to 48% with a topical finasteride solution. And in pregnancy, I, I think something cosmetic like hair loss would be much less of a consideration than the you know health of the embryo and the baby there. So the risk reward benefit doesn't make sense there. Hair growth is typically phenomenal in pregnancy. And even with a dutasteride, which I think does get absorbed minimally systemically. Mm -hmm. I remember when I worked in the hospital as an RN, you know, you'd have dutasteride and you would want women to, you know, glove up if they're going to be handing that gel cap to a patient. And definitely if they were pregnant, they were not even opening it. The dutasterides were individually packaged Mm -hmm. so that there was no accidental exposure. So there was that much of an abundance of caution around dutasteride. I just don't follow the line of thinking, you know, topical finasteride in pregnant women. I give that a Norwood 7. It's a terrible treatment choice. Yes, very poor treatment choice. Uh, Most treatments for alopecia during pregnancy are um, likely poor treatment choices unless they're like uh, addressing a deficiency. Um, If it was correcting a hypothyroidism that came during pregnancy, I would give that a Norwood negative one. So that's just a far more benefits. uh, Preventing risk of miscarriage is one of the main ones. Um, While we're on the topic, hypothyroidism, newly diagnosed in pregnancy, one of the most common causes of miscarriage and recurrent miscarriage. 
So definitely look at all your thyroid hormones, not just TSH during pregnancy. Um, also on the note of, uh, you know, topical finasteride, dutasteride, paternal and maternal risk in general, we say even for males taking finasteride, since spermatogenesis takes 60 days, stop the finasteride 90 days before attempting or desiring conception. And then stop the oral dutasteride 12 months before, again, out of an abundance of caution. In the grand scheme of things, not going to make a huge difference. There's other things that you can do as well um, to kind of carry you through that time. And then topical dutasteride, six months also kind of maybe, maybe three months out of an abundance of caution. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.